Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. So what are the top things I wish I would have known on my very first deal? That's what we're talking about today. Hey, what's going on, guys? Dan Kruger at Invictus Capital. And today we're going to talk about some of the top things that I wish I knew on my very first deal. Uh, so a little background, a little context here. My very first deal was a six-unit apartment building in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I did not syndicate this deal. I didn't have partners in it. Uh, this first deal was just uh, me using my own money and doing it all myself. So this might be a little bit different than some other people who are, are, are syndicating deals. So what I'm going to be talking about today is a single owner-operator uh, situation and what I wish I would have known going into that. So the first thing I wish I would have appreciated more was that you cannot change the location of a building no matter how much you fix it up. It's still going to be on the same block and in the same neighborhood. I went into that first property thinking that I could get uh, rents up to the, 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 the top of the market for that entire area. And I'm not just talking about the block, but uh, the entire neighborhood. I thought if I make these units really great, I should be able to get top of market rent. What I neglected uh, to consider, which didn't really become apparent to me until after trying to lease a bunch of these units and getting feedback from potential residents was it was in a, just a really weird, awkward location. It was on this awkward little corner, kind of at the end of a block. Um, it just wasn't that easy to get to. Parking was a pain. And that was a, a big issue in trying to lease the units at the rents that I was trying to get to. I couldn't really compete with other properties that had a much more aesthetically a pleasing block or better parking. So it didn't really matter what the units looked like inside the building. Just the location uh, was a big hindrance on that first property. Now it ended up being a good deal. Um, very successful deal. Ended up producing about a 42% IRR over the course of three years. So it, it all worked, but I definitely underestimated the block context, the, the, the surrounding buildings, and just the, the nuances of the neighborhood that I had no control over. I wish I would have known on that first deal was that you need a rock star team. Now, on this first deal, I thought I was going to outsource to third-party management and everything was just going to go swimmingly. Well, it didn't. On a little six-unit building that had a very rough tenant base and had a lot of upgrades to be done, I needed a project manager. And your run-of-the-mill property management group who's going to manage a little six-unit uh, for somebody is not going to be that. And so I tried to dump all of this work on these guys, and within about four or five months, I realized that things just were not getting executed. And why would they? For a 6% management fee on a little six-unit, they're getting a couple hundred bucks a month. They're not going to spend all day, every day, they're managing contractors and uh, doing all the things that need to be done to, to move this project along. So about five months in, maybe six months in, cut ties with the management company and I completely took over. It was not passive. I went into this thing thinking that it was going to be passive. So the bottom line here is that you need 
to have a rock star team. If you're going to be doing value add deals, you need a project manager. If it's not you, you need to get one, whether it's a partner, an employee, or a contractor, you need somebody who's executing and, and keeping track of those projects as they're being executed. You also need a leasing agent. It could be you, it could be somebody else. You've got to have somebody with that skill set. And it's very rare that everybody's going to have all the skill sets needed here. So in a perfect world, you've got a partner or you've at least got a good uh, set of contractors that you can work with to execute on a, on a deal like this. Next thing I wish I knew on that first deal was that it can't be passive. Unless you're a limited partner on a syndication or you are specifically a very passive partner in a JV, joint venture, you're not just going to go and pick up a little property on your own, hire a property management company and say, okay, they're going to take care of everything. This is a passive investment. I actually remember telling somebody early on in the first couple months of owning this property that, oh, you know, I don't do much on the property. I've got a management company. It's totally passive. That was entirely wrong. It was not passive. Things were not getting done properly early on because the management company just was not incentivized to do all the work that needed to be done. Um, and then when we got rid of them, it was all me. So it was probably the farthest thing from passive. Now, you can be passive in real estate if you're an LP in a syndication or if you've got a partner who's agreed that they're going to do all the work and you actually trust them to do that. But if you're going to go and pick up properties on your own like I did, it is not passive. It's at least a part-time job, if not a full-time job. Next thing I wish I knew was that you need to do an extensive lease audit when you're doing your due diligence on a property. Now, I checked to make sure that there were leases. Uh, this was my first acquisition, like I mentioned before, but I really underestimated how much you've actually got to dig into the background checks and the applications and the income verification. Because had I done that, I would have found that those things did not exist at this property. Yes, we had tenants in the building. Yes, there were leases that were signed, but it should have been a major red flag that there was no background check or income verification included in these tenant files. Within a couple of months of taking over the property, I realized that we had a very rough tenant base. There was actually only one resident out of the six units that actually had a decent job and was paying his rent. And he'd been there for about a decade. Everybody else, it was just riffraff, shenanigans, illegal activities, and almost nobody was paying the rent. Got to make sure that the people in there are qualified, that they can actually afford to live there, and they actually have jobs, legal jobs, that are uh, supporting them and able to enable them to make their, their rent payments. Last but not least, uh, this, this final lesson came from when I took over the management and was doing the management and leasing on my own before I hired my first employee. Uh, it's a lot better to have a vacant unit than a bad tenant. When I got in there and I started trying to lease units for the first time, I was so excited to get people into that building because I needed the income to, to pay for the mortgage. However, I really underestimated how expensive it is to have the wrong tenant in a building. So I uh, over-enthusiastically welcomed pretty much anybody in that agreed to apply and fill out uh, a lease. I learned very quickly after that that if you get a less than ideal tenant into a building and they're either into some illegal activity or just don't have the money to pay their rent, it takes a very long time and a lot of money to actually get them out of that unit. I had to go through my first eviction on this property, and it's actually the first of only say three or four in all the years we've been doing this. We've not evicted many people. But on this first building, I did have to evict somebody. It was a really bad experience. The resident actually vacated. We, we had to go to court. We had to do the whole thing, pay all the money. 
And I actually had to go back with the sheriff because I never got the keys. Uh, This resident just went silent. And so there's this period after the eviction is filed and the judge says, okay, yeah, you got to get out. You've got it's either 28 or 30 days to vacate the property. If they don't do it by that point, you go back with the sheriff. And when we went back with the sheriff, literally everything was still there. Old food in the fridge. Uh, I think there was still a TV on actually, but it was very clear no one had been there for a long time. And here's the kicker. They actually left their cat in the unit. So when, when you add up the legal fees um, all the time and then the storage costs and then the uh, eventual cost of dumping all of their stuff, getting all their stuff hauled away and dumped, it ended up costing upwards of probably six, $7,000 and taking over three months to execute. And if I had just let that unit sit vacant for a couple weeks longer and got a good tenant in there, it would have been a completely different situation. So that's got to be one of the most uh, important lessons I learned uh, on that first property. You've got to screen and you've got to keep a unit vacant until you find a qualified resident. So I hope this uh, enlightened you guys into the world of real estate and I will see you guys in the next video. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.